The scent of smoke wafted through Joe Maxim's bedroom as dawn broke on April 28, 1908. At first, he thought there was an early breakfast cooking below. He did live on the second story, somewhere above the kitchen in the home, but the smoke drifting through his window looked unusually thick. So Maxon rose from his bed, peered outside, and saw what essentially was a wall of flames. His mind immediately turned to the other people that he shared the home with, three children, as well as the home's owner, a 48-year-old widow named Belle Gunnis, were most likely still asleep. Maxon was the family's hired farmhand and had lived in the small Laporte, Indiana farm for barely three months. It was his job to protect the property and the people in it. He ran across his bedroom and tried to open the door leading to Gunnis's half of the home. It was locked. With smoke choking his throat and making it difficult for him to see, Maxon cried out in desperate attempt to get the family's attention. Fire! Fire! But nobody stirred. The only thing Maxon heard was the ominous creaking of burning wood and timbers. As Hayes filled the bedroom, Maxon scrambled down a set of rear stairs, ran outside, and grabbed an axe. He desperately hacked at the door, leading to Miss Gunnis's part of the home, but it was of no use. Nobody inside was responding. He couldn't hear anyone moving. And by the time the authorities got to the property to put the building to put the fire out, the building was a charred husk of itself. When the fire finally cooled enough for firemen to sift through the rubble, they found evidence that the fire was not accidental. And in the basement, they found four burnt bodies, three children and an adult female. The woman's corpse was suspiciously headless. Immediately, neighbors began mourning the tragedy. Belle Gunnis, a lonely widow who had spent years fruitlessly looking for love, had died surrounded by her children in a horrendous fire. For all her life, it seemed that tragedy had followed Mrs. Gunnis. She had lost two husbands and multiple children to terrible accidents, and now it looked as though fate had come for her too. Within days, a disgruntled former farmhand named Ray Lamphier was arrested for setting fire to the building. As the village mourned, a South Dakota man named Isles Hegling walked into the Laporte Sheriff's Office. He had heard about the blaze and was deeply worried. Months earlier, his brother had moved to Laporte with the intention of moving in with Mrs. Gunnis. He hadn't heard from his brother since. The ensuing investigation would turn the, the small farm town of Laporte, Indiana, into the center of America's attention. Because what looked on the outside like a life riddled with tragedies and disappearances that no one could explain and a family that had met a tragic end became one of the most talked about murder mysteries in American consciousness because what the people of Laporte, Indiana didn't know about Bell Gunness is that in addition to being a widower with children and a farm, she was also one of the nation's first serial killers. You are listening to Murder V Wrote. I'm your host, V. Sorensen Gunnis was born as Brynhild Paldsatter Sorth, November 11, 1859, in Norway. Um, she and her early years are kind of up for debate. Uh, most biographers would say that she was, again, born November 11th, and that her parents and her uh, lived in a very, like, small cotter's farm, and that basically, you know, she, it was a hard life for her, like, they, they were poor, um, but there's not a whole bunch, no, now, there is, um, made by a woman named Anne Betsby, uh, that aired in 2006, tells a common but unverified story about Guinness's early life, 
The story holds that in 1877, Guinness attended a country dance while pregnant. She do, we don't know who the father is or anything. And that she was attacked by a man who kicked her in the abdomen and it caused her to miscarry this child. The man who came from a rich family um, that kicked her was never prosecuted. Um, according to people who knew Belle Gunness, this really changed her personality. Um, the man who attacked her died shortly afterwards. And it says that his cause of death was stomach cancer. This kind of shaped Bell's, I guess, ways of looking at men or the treatment that men often give women, especially in this time period. We're talking about, you know, late 1800s, early 1900s, where women didn't have a lot of rights. You essentially needed a husband to take care of you. So I could see how her lot in life was very difficult and it may have led to some of her other decisions, but we'll get into that. Bell has a sister and the sister, Nellie Larson, immigrated to America and had kept trying to get Belle to come there. So Belle essentially takes a, a job in service of a large wealthy family on a farm and she worked there for three years so that she could pay for this trip across the Atlantic um, to go and be with her sister. And so this is how she gets to America. And so she ends up in Chicago, Illinois, where her sister Nellie is. In 1884, Belle marries a man named Mads Dietliff Sorensen in Chicago. And about two years later, they open up a, a confectionery store. So for those of you who don't know, <laughs> confectionery store is essentially a candy store. They sell sweets and goodies. It could be many different things. But in this case, the business wasn't successful. And within a year, it mysteriously burned down. And then Mads and some people say they had no children. Other people report that they had four children, Caroline, Axel, Myrtle, and Lucy. Uh, Caroline and Axel died in infancy, um, allegedly of colitis. The thing with them having colitis is that the symptoms of acute colitis are nausea, fever, diarrhea, and like lower abdominal pain and cramping. And those can also be symptoms of many forms of poisoning. Um, one that you guys are probably most familiar with from this time period is probably arsenic, and that probably would have been the one that was most accessible to Belle. Um, this is all speculation, of course, um, as she had insured both infants. And so when they died, the insurance company paid both policies. So there is no evidence or any type of um, criminal proceedings that would lend itself to say 100% either way that either they died naturally of colitis or that she possibly poisoned them uh, for an insurance payout. In May 7th of 1908, there's a New York Times article that states that two children belonging to Belle Gunness and her husband, Mad Sorensen, were interred in her plot in Forest Home Cemetery. So that leads to, again, us believing that maybe there were these children and they just didn't survive. Uh, Belle Gunness and her family were counted on the United States Census in Chicago. The census recorded her as the mother of four children, of whom only two were living. That would be Myrtle, who was three, and Lucy, who was one. Um, there was an adopted 10-year-old girl. He apparently dies, interestingly, on the only day in which the two life insurance policies that he had on his life overlapped. So the first doctor to see him thought that he was suffering from strychnine poisoning, identified possibly as Morgan Couch, but was apparently later known as Jenny Olson, who was also counted in the household. So again, with the insurance policies, uh, Mads dies July 30th, 1900, but the Sorensen's family doctor had been treating him for an enlarged heart. So Essentially, the doctor just concluded that the death had been caused by heart failure, and they completely just disregarded the possibility of the strychnine poisoning. At this point, they could have done an autopsy, but that was considered, you know, unnecessary because the death wasn't considered suspicious. Basically, the doctor that considered that there might have been poisoning deferred to the other doctor, and they wrote it off as a heart attack. So at that point, there was no reason to do an autopsy because nothing was suspicious. Belle told the doctor that she had given her late husband um, medicinal powders to help him feel better. Uh, whatever medicinal powders mean. I'm going to go with strychnine, but <laughs> I suppose that's anybody's guess. Um, so basically, she buried her husband and a day later after his funeral, she applied to get the insurance money immediately. And some of Mad's relatives claimed that Bill had poisoned him to collect the insurance, and the surviving records suggest that there was an inquest ordered. 
It is unclear, however, that the investigation actually happened or that Mad Sorensen's body was ever exhumed to check for arsenic as his relatives had demanded. Um, but it, what is known is that the insurance companies awarded her $8,500, which is about $217,000 when adjusted for inflation around 2008. And she took that money and they she uh, bought a farm on the outskirts of Laporte, Indiana. And that is where she moved. When she was preparing to move from Chicago to Laporte, she became reacquainted with a recent widower, much like herself, named Peter Gunnis, who was also Norwegian-born, um, and they got married um, on April 1st, 1902. Because this is, again, the turn of the century, and most often it was not uncommon for children to not make it to their first birthdays or even past six months, I don't think that it was necessarily suspicious on its own that the baby died while in Belle's care. What is suspicious, though, is that in December of 1902, so some maybe six, seven months later, Peter himself met with a tragic accident. Um, according to Bill, he was reaching for his slippers next to the kitchen stove when he was scalded with brine. She later declared after the fact that part of the sausage grinding machine fell off a high shelf and it fell on his head, causing a fatal injury. A year later, Peter's brother Gust took Peter's older daughter, um, Swanhilde, to Wisconsin. And so she's the only child that to this day or up until this point that has been in Belle's care that has survived because her uncle took her to live with him as he was her blood relative and, and Belle was not. Um, so at the death of Peter Gunnis, Belle ended up with another $3,000, maybe $4,000 that she got from um, another uh, insurance policy. And it was hard. Uh, there was a lot of, I guess, we'll say speculation and gossip amongst the townspeople because a lot of them refused to believe that her husband could be clumsy enough to burn himself with brine and then knock the sausage grinder off of a high shelf, I guess, waving his arms around frantically because of the brine, and then have the sausage grinder hit him in the head in a way that he did not try to block it with his arms or anything. And then it created an injury in the back of his head that was bad enough to kill him you can see how ridiculous this kind of sounds when you say it out loud meanwhile jenny olsen who at some point was morgan couch was about 14 years old at this point and was overheard confessing to a classmate and she says my mama killed my papa she hit him with the meat cleaver and he died don't tell a soul jenny 14 at the time was brought before this coroner's jury but denied having remade the remarks and Belle, meanwhile, convinced the coroner that she was innocent of any wrongdoing. She did not mention that she was pregnant, which would have inspired some sympathy, but in May 1903, a baby boy, Philip, joined the family. In uh, late 1906, Belle told neighbors that her foster daughter, Jenny Olson, or Morgan Couch, um, had gone away to a Lutheran college in Los Angeles. Some other neighbors were told that it was a finishing school for young ladies, so depending on who you ask, they had a different story. But what we find out later is that Jenny's body was later found buried on her adoptive mother's property, in this case, Bill. The district coroner revealed, kind of was like, you know what, I'll review the case. And he unequivocally agreed with what pretty much all the townspeople were saying and what we're saying here, that he had to have been murdered. He convened a coroner's jury to look into the matter. Um, so between 1903 and 1907, uh, Bill just continued to run the farm that she had on the And then in 1907, uh, she employed one single farm hand named Ray Lanthier to help her with the chores. Get past the psychology here since there wasn't as much to talk about. Um, because this case gets very interesting very quickly. Um, at this point, Nobody's convicted Belle Gunnitz of killing anybody, but she's lost two husbands, two children, and one adopted child. So at this point, the body count is up to five people. So it would seem that they would have noticed Belle was losing people right and left. So after she hires Ray Lanthier to work on the farm, Belle started putting advertisements in the matrimonial columns of all the Chicago daily newspapers and those in other large Midwestern cities. So basically what people would do essentially is the, I guess, 1907 
uh, version uh, of Tinder or <laughs> or any of these um, apps or I guess what would proceed like um, classifieds or Craigslist match ads. Uh, so obviously before the internet, people wrote letters and the newspaper was the way that you could meet people that didn't necessarily live in your town with you. So Belle did what I guess everyone else did at that time. And she put this uh, essentially ad in the paper advertising herself. And you tell people a little bit about you and what you're looking for and then have someone respond and you meet them that way. So uh, I'm going to read you the personal ad that Belle Gunn has put in the paper. Personal. Comely widow who owns a large farm in one of the finest districts in LaPorte County, Indiana, des I'm sorry, Indiana, deserves to make or desires to make the acquaintance of a gentleman equally well provided with view of joining fortunes. No replies by letter considered unless sender is willing to follow answer with a personal visit. Triflers need not apply. So Bell meant business. <laughs> and Essentially, what this means is that she was telling these guys, you know, hey, I'm willing to write a couple letters back and forth, but I'm not interested in being a pen pal. Um, if you're going to respond to this ad, I expect you to show up here at the farm so that we can meet in person relatively quickly. Um, so several of, well, really more than several, <laughs> lots of men responded to uh, Bill Gunnis's uh, personal ad and the thing to remember about Belle is that she was not a small woman and at the time the early 1900s she had this very voluptuous shape that is kind of the antithesis of what we think about or what the standard of beauty is for us now but at one point uh, the curvy tall busty woman was certainly what everyone was looking for and Belle was blonde she was fair-skinned she was six feet tall she weighed over 200 pounds so she was a, a very curvy solid woman who could do the work of handling a pig farm and I think this also worked to her advantage because she was able to essentially kill her victims and dispose of them without really having to involve anybody else which I guess if you're going to murder people that's the best way to do it I digress. So the mail carrier says that Bell Gunnis was probably receiving upwards of like eight letters a day from these responses. And it looked like maybe none of them were going to work out. One guy who did make it out to the farm's name was John Moe. And he uh, from Elbow Lake, Minnesota. He had brought about $1,000 with him to pay off her mortgage or so he had told the neighbors. And what is, I guess, fluent through all of these stories is that she always told people differing stories but never that these people were there as suitors always that these people were there that were cousins or distant relatives who were just visiting so that made it to where people weren't as nosy about what was going on and the expectation that they would probably be there a few days to a week and then they would leave so then if someone asked where this person had gone she really didn't have to explain much except for that they had went home because she really hadn't given any information in the first place regarding who they really were. John Moe came after he was introduced as her cousin. About a week later, he in fact disappeared from the farm without a trace and everyone just kind of assumed that, well, that he had left and went home. And after he left, there came another gentleman named George Anderson from uh, Tarkio, Missouri, who like Peter Gunnis and John Moe was an immigrant from Norway. So. Again, I think she was able to kind of appeal to these immigrant men who were looking for someone who connected with them culturally, especially in the early Americas where, I mean, we essentially were a melting pot of people and most cultures kind of kept to themselves and you found someone who was a nice whatever you were and you settled down and got married. Um, so during dinner uh, with Anderson, because he came to the farm, she, uh, Belle Gunnis brings up the issue of her mortgage and George, uh, Anderson agrees that he would pay it off if they decided to get married. He was like, that's fine with me. If we suit and we end up getting married, I will absolutely pay off your mortgage. I won't do it before, but I'm willing to agree to pay it off if we get married. George Anderson spends the night and according to his accounts, because, well, he's not with us now, but he certainly lived to tell the tale and this is his recounting of it. 
He says that he woke up in the middle of the night and Belle Gunness was standing over him and she was holding a candle in her hand and she had a crazy look on her face and in her eyes. And then he said that once he woke up and sat up, she, without like saying a word, ran from the room. So Mr. Anderson also fled from the house and took the next train smoking back to Missouri, never to come visit again. <laughs> so I, I don't, I think that in his mind, maybe the thought was that she was going to murder him so that he did not leave. So after George Anderson, the sitters kept coming. So she had no shortage of people visiting this farm. And in fact, it looked like maybe every week or two, there was some new man coming in and off the farm that she was calling a cousin or uncle or whatever. Except for Anderson, none of them ever left the farm. Like they would just disappear. So around this time, she had also begun ordering these really big like steamer shipper trunks um, delivered to her farm. To her, to her farm. Um, and a hack driver who was essentially like a, a buggy driver, his name was Clyde Sturgis, said he delivered uh, many of these trunks to her and later remarked that uh, she was able to lift these enormous trunks like quote unquote boxes of marshmallows, tossing them onto her shoulders and then carrying them into the house. She would keep the shutters of the house closed day and night. Um, and then at night, oddly enough, farmers or people that were traveling late at night would saw her like digging in her hog pens. Ole Budsberg was an elderly widow widower from Iowa, Wisconsin, appeared next uh, when he mortgaged his Wisconsin land there and he signed over a deed to the bank and got several thousand dollars in cash. Mr. Budberg's sons, Oscar and Matthew, had no idea that their father had even gone off to visit Gunnis. And when they finally discovered that's where he went, they wrote to her and said, hey, my, my father had said that he was coming to your farm to visit to see you. And we have not seen him since. Did he get there okay? Is he still with you? And Belle promptly responded to them via letter that she had never seen their father a day in her life. So mail is moving far more quickly than it had, but not as quickly as it does now. Um, so she's able to kind of get these people there. They can write correspondence to their family and say, hey, I'm fine. And then the next day they're dead, but the correspondence may not reach their family for two weeks, three weeks, a month. So, you know, their family member has been in debt a month and they just now are figuring out where they are. She's had ample time to dispose of any belongings or evidence or, you know, proof that that person was ever there. And then she's also covering her tracks because remember, she's not telling anyone who these people really are. And then she's writing to them and telling them not to tell their family members where they're going. So the family members are, are finding out quite by accident that their family, that their you know, sons or uncles or dads or whoever, whomever are going to Bill Gunness's farm in the port, but they're finding out way later and kind of by accident. So several other middle-aged men appeared and disappeared in brief visits to the Gunness farm throughout 1907. So Bill was a very busy girl on um, lots of suitors and we're sex positive on this podcast. So good for her on the sex positive part and the dates, but bad for her on the murder part. Um, so in December 1907, she meets Andrew Helligan, and he is a bachelor farmer from Aberdeen, South Dakota, and he wrote to her and was warmly received. The pair exchanged many letters um, until a letter that basically overwhelmed Andrew, and it is written uh, by Bill, and it's dated January 13th, 1908. Uh, this letter was later found on Andrew's farm, and it read, to my dearest friend in the world, no woman in the world is happier than I am. I know that you are now to come to me and be my own. I can tell from your letters that you are the man I want. It does not take one long to tell when a person and you I like better than anyone in the world I know. Think how we will enjoy each other's company. You, the sweetest man in the whole world. We will be all alone with each other. Can you conceive of anything nicer? I think of you constantly when I hear your name mentioned, and this is when one of the dear children speaks of you, or I hear myself humming it with the words of an old love song. It is beautiful music to my ears. My heart beats in wild rapture for you, my Andrew. I love you. Come prepared to stay forever. 
So she, <laughs> Belle has written Andrew um, a very, very, very enticing love letter into which Andrew decides that he has got to go get his girl. This is enough after exchanging 80 or so letters for Andrew to decide enough is enough and he's going to move to Laporte. So he arrives in January of 1908 and he had with him a check for $2,900, which was all of his savings. Um, that he had withdrawn from the local bank. A few days after Andrew arrived, him and Bell appeared at the savings bank in Laporte and they deposited the check. Bell appeared at the savings bank to make a $500 deposit and another deposit of $700 in, in the state bank. And it's around this time that she started to have problems with Ray Lamphere. So in March of 1908, Gunn sent several letters to her farm and horse dealer in Topeka, Kansas named Lon Townsend, inviting him to visit her. He decided that he would put off the visit until spring, and so he did not see her before the the uh, farm was on fire, which I guess is good for him because, well, then he would have been dead. <laughs> Gunnis was also in correspondence for, with a man from Arkansas and sent him a letter dated May 4th, 1908, and he would have visited her but did not because uh, of the fire at her farm as well. Uh, she had also promised marriage to a suitor named Bert Albert, but that didn't go through because she felt like he had a lack of money or he had a lack of money. And so since he wasn't wealthy, she wasn't interested in getting married. So let's turn our attentions for a minute back to Ray Lamphere because the whole time and something that I guess I should have mentioned up front, but she hired Ray Lamphere, remember, to do chores and be a farmhand. Well, the part that I didn't mention is that she was also sleeping with Ray Lamphere, but rebuffing his advances to be in a relationship or get married while also entertaining all these other suitors. So Ray had fallen in love with Belle Gunness and she simply was not interested and continued to see other men while also sleeping with him. He began to get like really jealous of the other men who were courting bell and he started making like these ridiculous scenes and being very threatening so uh by february 3rd of 1908 she had fired him uh after she had fired him she went to the courthouse and declared that he was not of right mind and that he was a menace to the public and she somehow convinced local authorities to hold a sanity hearing now lamphere was not um kept in custody at this time he was pronounced sane and released and Guinness was back yet again in a few days to complain to the sheriff that he had visited her farm and argued with her and that she basically said that she felt that Ray Lamphere posed a threat to her and her family and she had him arrested for trespassing. Lamphere returned again and again to see her after this, but she drove him away each time. He would make thinly disguised threats. And on one occasion, he had confided to another farmer, William Slater, saying that Andrew Helligan won't bother them anymore, that they we, we quote unquote fixed him for keeps. So Andrew had long since disappeared from <laughs> Laporte, and so it was believed. But his brother, Osleg, was disturbed when Andrew failed to return home. So he wrote to Bill, much as the other, as Mr. Bud, Budsburg's children had, to ask about Andrew's whereabouts. And Bell Gunnis wrote him back and said that his brother was not at the farm and probably went to Norway to visit relatives. Osley wrote back and said that he did not believe his brother would do that. And moreover, he believed that his brother was still in the Laporte area and that was the last place he was seen or heard from. Uh, Bell Gunnis just kind of brazened it out and she told him you know what if you want to come look for your brother come on I will help you conduct a search you know I'll get involved in my can but I'm letting you know this is going to be really expensive so if you want people involved in a manhunt then you should come prepared to pay for my assistance and I'll get everybody on board. Osley was like you know what I will come to the port but I'm gonna wait till shit thaws out a little because it's cold um I'll see you in May. So at this point we have Bell Gunnis who has <laughs> murdered a slew of people um, we have Ray Lamphere, who she is at this point afraid of because he is threatening her and, uh, is now an unresolved danger. And then we have Osley Hellion, who is making inquiries that could have her hanged if they find out. Um, so she basically told a lawyer, Emmy Lettler, that she feared for her life and that of her children. Ray Lamphere, she said, had threatened to kill her and burn her house down, and she wanted to make out a will in case Lamphere went through with his threats that her children would be cared for if she was the only person to die, and that her family would 
get the things that were hers if something were to happen to her and the entire family. Lettler com uh, compiled everything she asked and drew up a will for her. Uh, she left her entire estate to her children and then she left Lettler's offices. She went um, to one of the Laporte banks that was holding her mortgage for the property and paid it off. Uh, but she did not go to the police and tell them about Lamphere's life-threatening um, conduct. So basically, she went and got all of her affairs in order because she felt that he was a quote-unquote danger. But then she didn't go to the police to report these most recent incidents to try to get him picked up again. The reason for this is most likely and what most people came to conclude later is that he actually hadn't threatened her and that she was really just kind of setting the stage and putting some background to this arson that she was about to commit. So now we are back at the beginning of our story. So these burned bodies are in the basement. There is a headless woman's corpse in the basement and Ray Lamphere is picked up for it. At this point, the county sheriff Smutzer had heard about Lamphere's threats and he looked around at what had happened and immediately went to find him. And then the lawyer, Lettler, because she had went to see him, was also able to corroborate this testimony that, you know, about how Lamphere had threatened Belle Gunnis and said he was going to kill her family and burn her house down. Lamphere didn't really help his own cause much. At the minute that he was confronted about all of this, the sheriff just kind of walked up to him and he hadn't said anything yet. And he immediately asked, did Widow Gunnis and the kids get out all right? He was then told about the fire, but then denied having anything to do with it, claiming that he wasn't near the farm when it happened. But it's kind of like, well, you know, why are you asking about it? But I guess it could be argued that, you know, if a, if a fire burns down a whole house, everyone in town is going to know about it before the police come looking for you. So a youth named John Solman was brought forward and he said he had been watching the Gunnis place and that he saw Ray Lamphere running down the road from the Gunnis house just before it erupted into flames. And Lamphere snorted at the boy and said, you wouldn't look me in the eye and say that. And he said, yes, I will. You found me hiding behind the bushes and you told me you'd kill me if I didn't get out of there. At th that point, Lamphere was arrested and charged with murder and arson. And then scores of investigators, sheriff's deputies, coroner's men, and volunteers begin to search the ruins for evidence. What happens is that they take the charred remains to be viewed and they have basically the corpse that was in there was a woman that was about five feet, three inches without the head and weighed no more than 150 pounds. So despite being burned, they're able to tell that <laughs> Belle Gunness was 200 pounds and she was almost six foot tall. So, I mean, it just didn't make any sense and everyone could corroborate. Like I, you know, there's just no way that that person that they had, and that body was not, it just was not Belle Gunnis. And even the flesh being badly burned was taken into account because it was still in a, they examined the eternal organs and had them sent away to be autopsied. And a Dr. J. Myers in Chicago, who did this um, pathology, looked at the contents of the stomach and the organs and testified later and reported that there were lethal doses of strychnine in the body. Gunnis's dentist, Dr. Ira P. Norton, said that if the teeth and dental work of the headless corpse could be located, he could definitely tell if it was Bell Gunnis. So they begin sifting through the debris looking, you know, the debris looking for teeth um, in addition to other bones. Uh, in May 19, a piece of bridge work was found consisting of two human canine teeth with their roots still attached, porcelain teeth, and gold crown work in between. Uh, Norton identified them as work that he had done for Gunnis, and as a result, the coroner, Charles Mack, officially concluded that the adult female body discovered in the ruins was Belle Gunnis. It could be argued, however, that that was not Belle Gunnis, and the reason that the corpse was headless and the teeth were just kind of found in there is because Belle removed the teeth and then left them there to be found. So at this point, while all of this is going on, remember uh, Andrew's brother, Osley, is, is still coming to Laporte, but has decided to wait. So when he arrives in Laporte, the house has already been burned down and he's very confused because now he's like, okay, well, this woman told me to come here and now you're saying that her entire house burned down with her in it? And they're like, yeah. So Osley, being a smart man, was like, that's cool and all, but... He felt like Bell Gunnis was still responsible for his brother Andrew's disappearance, and he wanted to see if maybe Andrew's body was also at the farm. So this is when Joe Maxson, who shared the home with Bell Gunnis, comes forward with information that basically couldn't be ignored. He tells uh, 
the sheriff that Bell had ordered him to bring loads of dirt by wheelbarrow to a large area surrounded by a high wire fence where the hogs were fed. Joe Maxson said that there were many deep depressions in the ground that had been covered by dirt. These filled in holes, Guinness had told Maxson, contained rubbish. She wanted the ground made level, so he filled in the depressions. This is when the sheriff, Schmutzer, took a dozen men back to the farm and began to dig. On May 3rd, 1908, the diggers unearthed the body of Jenny Olson, who had vanished in December of 1906, two years ago. They found the small bodies of two, identi two unidentified children. Subsequently, the body of Andrew Helgen was unearthed. His overcoat was found to be worn by Lamphere. Uh, and as the days progressed and the gruesome work continued, one body after another was discovered in Guinness's hog pen. Uh, that of old B. Budsberg of Iola, Wisconsin. He vanished May of 1907. Remember, his children had written to her to find out what had happened. Thomas Linbo, who had left Chicago and had gone to work as a hired man for Guinness three years earlier. Henry Gergholt of Scandinavia, Wisconsin, who had gone to wed her a year earlier, taking $1,500 to her. A watch corresponding to one belonging to Gerhardt was found with the body. Olaf Svindherg from Chicago, John Moe of Elbow Lake, Minnesota. His watch was also found in Lamphere's possession. Olaf Lindblom, age 35, from Wisconsin. Uh, reports of other possible victims began to come in. Um, and this is a long list, so I'll try to get through it as quickly as possible. William Minge, a coach, a coachman of New York City who had left that city on April 1st, 1904. Herman Consecker of Chicago, who disappeared in January of 1906. Charles Edmond of New Carlisle, Indiana. George Berry of Tuscola, Illinois. Christy Hilfkin of Dory Barron, Wisconsin, who sold his farm and then came to LaPorte in 1906. Charles Nyberg, a 25-year-old Scandinavian immigrant who lived in Philadelphia told his friends he was going to visit Bell in June of 1906 and never came back. John H. McJunkin of Coropolis left his wife in December of 1906 after corresponding with a report woman. Olaf Jensen, a Norwegian immigrant of Carroll, Indiana, wrote his, his relatives in 1906 that he was going to marry a wealthy widow in Laporte. Henry Bitsky of Laporte, who disappeared 1906, and his hired man, Edward Cannery of Pink Lake, Illinois, who also vanished in 1906. Bert Chase of Mishwakwa, Indiana, sold his butcher shop and told his friends, a wealthy widow, that he was going to look up. His brother received a telegram, supposedly from Aberdeen, South Dakota, claiming Bert had been killed in a train wreck. His brother investigated and found the telegram was fictitious. Tonis Pearson Lynn of Rushford, Minnesota, is alleged to have disappeared April 2nd, 1907. A gold ring marked SB, May 28, 1907, was found in the ruins, but we do not know who that belongs to. A hired man named George Bradley of Tuscola, Illinois, is alleged to have gone to LaPorte to meet a widow and three children in October of 1907. T.J. Tiefland of Minneapolis is alleged to have come see, to come see Bell Gunness in 1907. Frank Riddinger, a farmer from Wisconsin, came to Indiana in 1907 to marry and never returned. Emil Tell, a Swedish man from Kansas City, Missouri, is alleged to have gone to LaPorte in 1907. Lee Porter of Bartonsville, Oklahoma, separated from his wife and told his brother he was going to marry a wealthy widow in LaPorte. Johnny Hunter left Pennsylvania on November 25th, 1907, after telling his daughters he was going to marry a wealthy widow in northern Indiana. Two other Pennsylvanians, George Williams um, and Ludwig Stoll, also left their homes to go marry a widow in Laporte. Uh, Abraham Phillips, a railway man in West Virginia, left in the winter of 1907 to go to northern Indiana and marry a rich widow. A railway watch was found in the debris of the house. Benjamin Carling of Chicago, Illinois, was last seen by his wife in 1907 to tell he was going to Laporte to secure an investment with a rich widow. He had with him $1,000 from an insurance company and borrowed money from several investors as well. In June of 1908, his widow was able to identify his remains from Laporte's Pauper Cemetery after the contour of his skull and three missing teeth. Um, Augustus Gunderson of Green Lake, Wisconsin. Ole Olison of Battle Creek, Michigan. Linder Nicholson of Huron, South Dakota. Andrew Anderson of Lawrence, Kansas. 
Johan Sorison of St. Joseph's, Missouri. A possible victim was a man named Hinckley. Um, and some reported unnamed victims. Uh, a daughter of Mrs. H. Witzer of Toledo, Ohio, who attended Indiana University uh, near Laporte in 1902. An unknown man and woman, an unknown man and woman are alleged to have disappeared in September of 1906, the same night that Jenny Olson went missing. Uh, Guinness claimed that they were a Los Angeles professor and his wife who had taken Jenny to California. Um, so in this case, it is fair to assume that, uh, because Jenny was there, they didn't make it to California. They didn't either. A brother of Miss Jenny Graham of Wisconsin, who had left her to marry a rich widow in Laporte, but vanished, a hired buggy man who was 50 years old, uh, and Guinness, Guinness somehow inherited his horse and buggy and an unnamed man from Montana who told people he was going to sell Gunnis his horse and buggy, and they were found with several other horses and buggies at the farm. I don't think she sold it to him, but, or he don't think he sold it to her, but certainly uh, it had it. There were other remains that were found on the property that couldn't be identified. Uh, with that, on May 19, 1908, the remains of approximately seven unknown victims were buried in two coffins and unmarked graves in the proper section of Laporte's Pine Lake Cemetery. Uh, Andrew Helligan and Jenny Olson are also buried in Laporte's Patton Cemetery near Peter Gunnis. So the exact number of individuals unearthed on the Gunnis farm is unknown, but is believed to be approximately 12 people, not including the other victims that happened before that. After all of this, and they realize that Bill Gunnis is a murderer but obviously they think she's dead so they can't try her for the murder of all these people but they feel like because ray lamphere was so obsessed with her he would have known about these murders and so they try him for murder and arson for arson on may 22nd 1908 uh, suggesting that he or oh excuse me alleging that he was the person that uh killed bell gunness and her children and started fire to the home uh, Lamphere's lawyer, Wirt Warden, developed evidence that contradicted Norton's identification of the teeth and the bridgework. A local jeweler testified that though the gold in the bridgework had emerged from the fire almost undamaged, the fierce heat of the conflagration had melted the gold plating on several watches and items of gold jewelry. Local doctors replicated the conditions of the fire by attaching a similar piece of dental bridgework to a human jawbone and placing it in a blacksmith's forge. The real teeth crumbled and disintegrated, the porcelain teeth came out pocked and pitted, and the gold parts rather melted. Both the artificial elements were damaged to a greater degree than those in the bridgework offered as evidence of Bell Gunness's identity. The hired hand, Joe Maxson, and other men also testified that they had seen Klondike Schultz take the bridgework out of his pocket and plant it just before it was discovered. Lamphere was found guilty of arson, but acquitted of the murder. On November 26, 1908, he was sentenced to 20 years in state prison in Michigan City. He died of tuberculosis on December 30, 1909, after serving what amounts to one year of a 20-year sentence. On January 14, 1910, the Reverend E.A. Shell came forward with a confession that Lamphere was said to have made to him while the clergyman was comforting the dying man. In it, Lamphere revealed Guinness's crimes and swore that she was still alive. Lamphere had stated to the Reverend Shell that in a fellow convict, Harry Myers, shortly before his death, that he had not murdered anyone, but that he had helped Gunnis bury many of her victims. When a victim arrived, she made him comfortable, charming him and cooking him a large meal. Then she would drug his coffee, and when the man was in a stupor, she split his head with a meat chopper. Sometimes she would simply wait for the suitor to go to bed and then enter the bedroom by candlelight and chloroform her sleeping victim. I think this is what she intended for Mr. Anderson, who was our surviving person who was from Missouri and promptly, <laughs> promptly ran back to Missouri upon finding her standing over him. Because Belle Gunnis was such a large, powerful woman, she would then carry these bodies to the basement, place them on the table, and dissect them. Then she would bundle the remains and bury them in the hog pens in the grounds about the house. Belle had become an expert in dissection thanks to the instructions she received from her second husband, uh, the butcher, Peter Gunnis. To save time, she sometimes poisoned her victim's coffee with strychnine. She also varied her disposal methods, sometimes dumping the corpse into, the ho into a hog scalding vat and covering the, the remains with quicklime. Lamphere even stated that if Belle was overly tired after murdering one of her victims, she merely chopped up the remains in the middle of the night, stepped into the hog pen, and fed the remains to the hogs. 
The handyman also cleared up the mysterious question of the headless female corpse found in the ruins of, Guinness, of Bell Gunness's home. Gunness had lured this woman from Chicago on the pretense of hiring her as a housekeeper only days before she decided to make her permanent escape from LaPorte. Gunness, according to Lamthier, had drugged the woman, then bashed in her head and decapitated the body, taking the head, which had weights tied to it, to a swamp where she threw it into deep water. Then she chloroformed her children, smothered them to death, and dragged their small bodies along with the headless corpse to the basement. She dressed the female corpse in her old clothing, removed her false teeth, placing them beside the headless corpse to assure it to be identified as her. She then torched the house and fled. Lamphere had helped her, he admitted, but she had not left by the road where he waited for her after the fire had been set. She had betrayed her one-time partner in crime in the end by cutting across open fields and then disappearing into the woods. Some accounts suggest that Lamphere admitted that he took her to Stillwell, a town about nine miles from Laporte, and saw her off on a train to Chicago. Lamphere also said that Gunness was a rich woman and that she had murdered 42 men by his count, perhaps more, and had taken amounts from them ranging from about $1,000 to $32,000. She had allegedly accumulated more than $250,000 through her murder schemes over the years, a huge portion for those days, about $6.3 million roughly in today's money, give or take. She had a small amount remaining in one of her savings accounts, but local banks later admitted that she had indeed withdrawn most of her funds shortly before the fire. The fact that Gunness withdrew most of her money suggested that she was planning to evade the law. Gunness was, for several decades, allegedly seen or cited in cities and towns throughout the United States. Friends, acquaintances, and amateur detectives apparently spotted her on the streets of Chicago, San Francisco, New York, and Los Angeles. As late as 1931, Gunness was reported alive and living in a Mississippi town where she supposedly owned a great deal of property and lived the life of a, a doyen. Smutzer, for more than 20 years, received an average of two reports a month. She became part of America, American criminal folklore, a female bluebeard, so to speak. The bodies of, the gun of Bell Gunness's three children were found in the home's wreckage, but the headless adult female corpse found with them was never positively identified. Gunness's true fate is unknown. Laporte residents were divided between believing she was killed by Lamphere and that she had faked her own death. In 1931, a woman known as Esther Carlson was arrested in Los Angeles for poisoning August Lindstrom for money. Two people who had known Gunness claimed to recognize her from photographs, but the identification was never proved. Carlson died while awaiting trial. The body believed to be Belle Gunness was buried next to her first husband at Forest Home Cemetery in Forest Park, Illinois. On November 5, 2007, with the permission of descendants of Belle's sister, the headless body was exhumed from Gunness's grave in Forest Home Cemetery by a team of forensic anthropologists and graduate students from the University of Indianapolis in an effort to learn her true identity. It was initially hoped that a sealed envelope flap on a letter found at the victim's farm would contain enough DNA to be compared to the body. Unfortunately, there was not enough DNA there, so efforts continued to find a reliable source for comparison purposes including the disinterment of additional bodies in contact with known living relatives. And that is the story of Belle Gunness. Um, so, <laughs> Belle Gunness, interestingly enough, if you would like to believe it, may have gotten away with the murder of anywhere from 12 to 47 people, depending on who you believe, and was able to fake her own death frame a man that was madly in love with her and willing to do her bidding and then ride away into the sunset to live a life and die an old woman i i think it's fascinating um that again because there aren't a lot of female serial killers but also because she was able to do this unchecked for so long and murder these men by luring them out to her house essentially through the power of just being able to write a really really great letter uh if you want to talk to me about this episode uh because this one i again have been on a kind of a break so it's so glad so good to be back with you guys if you want to talk to me about this episode in particular or just bounce theories off me i would love to hear them um do you think that Bill Gunness is alive, was alive and lived a full life and then died as Esther Carlson? Or do you think that the headless body that they found 
in the basement was Val Gunnis and that she died at the hands of Ray Lanfear, a man who had helped her cover up all these murders. And he eventually just got tired of it. So I think there are people that believe either or maybe are on the fence. I think I'm squarely in the camp that Val Gunnis got away with murder um, and was able to fake her death and go right off into the sunset. Uh, I would love to hear what you think about it. You can, of course, uh, reach me um, anywhere that uh, you would like to talk to me. Um, on Twitter, it is at MurderVPod. Uh, on, on Instagram, it's Murder uh, it's MurderVPod as well. Uh, get in contact with me. Um, I love to hear from you. I answer back. You're welcome to talk to me about the episode. I love to hear from you guys. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else. I wanted to shout out um, podcast uh, Tamara, to, Tamara to the Break of Dawn. Um, her show is uh, wherever you can find dope podcasts. I'm going to put a link um, to her show in the notes for this week's episode. She was the one who got on my ass and told me I needed to get back to recording. So, Tam, this show is for you. Thank you for reaching out and trying to get me to get back to it. Um, I've been on a very long break since January. So it is nice to kind of be back with you all. Um, I wanted to shout out a few other people that had a birthday. Um, shout out to uh, Bree. She is on Twitter at, at Sass Ketchum, which I think is so witty and funny. Um, she used to be a co-host of the Good Morning Podcast, uh, along with Miss Neek and uh, Tyrese. Uh, the show is not around, but she is a wonderful person. She's become a great friend. Uh, she had a birthday last week. Uh, so if you have not wished her a happy birthday, you should totally do that. Um, she deserves all the birthday wishes and birthday kisses, so make sure you give those to her because I am a firm believer in giving people their flowers, and Brie is a lovely person and should definitely get those. I'm trying to think. There was a lot of birthdays that happened in June. I was not recording, so I would like to also send a very belated but happy birthday shout out to um, to Chris, who is one third of the other podcasts I do. Um, all docked up with DJ with Chris Penrose and DJ. Uh, so Chris had a birthday early in June. So very belated, but happy birthday to you, Chris, um, as well as as several other people that are in her um, podcast happy hour. Um, so I'm wishing all of you guys a happy birthday. I thought it was so cool that you all kind of did like a group birthday thing where you kind of sent each other gifts and celebrated. And that is so beautiful. Um, what I've also learned that apparently a lot of y'all are Gemini's and uh, statistically that means a lot of you are probably also serial killers. That just seems to be right on par, you guys and Sagittariuses, but <laughs> I digress. That is something to discuss for another day. Um, so again, if you like the show, if you want me to keep putting it out, if you hate it, don't like it that much, have suggestions on how we can make the show better, reach out to us. And of course, you please can like, rate, and subscribe on um, iTunes and Apple Podcasts. I really look forward to hearing from you guys. Um, leave us five stars. Um, if you leave me one star, I'm going to be very sad, but I'm still going to but I'm still going to read whatever it is that you wrote. So make sure that you write something good that is worthy of only giving me one star. Um, and with that, I will talk to you guys next week. And again, this is B, and this has been Murder V Wrote.